Hello, dear friends. Greg Kokel here on Stand to Reason. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, glad to be with you today. And uh, it I don't know about you guys. It just it doesn't, doesn't feel like Christmas time to me yet. Fortunately, this is a good sign as far as I'm concerned. And maybe it's because I wasn't paying attention. But I didn't really feel like I was overwhelmed with Christmas stuff way too early, like often is the case. Now, I know... Maybe that's because I stayed out of Costco, <laughs> because I know that they had a bunch of stuff going early on. Uh, but I, I just, you know, decorations have gone up. I just had some surgery on my left foot, which means I'm scooting around a little scooter. I can't walk for a couple of months because of that. Nothing serious, just some, uh, just a tune-up, little, uh, what would you call it, uh, you know, when the bones aren't working well and it's bone-on-bone stuff, arthritis, there it is. And so they fuse some things together, and it's rather delicate. But uh, but I did get our Christmas lights up before the surgery, which was last week, and uh, and stitches out in a few days. But um, uh, then I've just got to scoot around while the whole thing deeply heals, and I can walk around again beginning of February. But uh, saw the you know saw the the lights in the community going up and all that, and uh, only heard my first couple of carols, I guess, last weekend. And uh, I I guess, you know, feeling Christmassy depends a bit on us individually engaging these kinds of things. Right now, we're still trying to figure out gift lists and go on Amazon and get all the things purchased that need to be purchased, my wife and I, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, hopefully things will settle down. I have not seen a Christmas movie yet. Usually the first for me of the season is the wonderful, in my view, I-M-H-O, my humble opinion, the nativity, which is really focusing in on Mary and Joseph and what it must have been like um, emotionally and culturally, socially, to, to be the ones chosen to be the parents of the Messiah. And... Uh, it's great. It's uh, biblically sound uh, for the most part, except for they're traveling at one point on the wrong side of the <laughs> Sea of Galilee. But, you know, that's relatively inconsequential. I think the characterizations of the different players are really, really good. Uh, they have, of course, the ahistorical element of the wise men showing up at the stable where Jesus is uh is born. Of course, that didn't happen that way. They came later. And uh, it's actually a kind of a cave-type stable, which that probably is not what happened either. Jesus was born in the lower sections of a house, all right, because there was no room for them in the Cataluma, which is the upper room. It wasn't a <laughs> an inn. There were no inns, as in I-N-N, in Bethlehem. <clears throat> Bethlehem was a very small town. They didn't have commercial centers, all right? Nevertheless, that's a great movie, and it's a great way to get me started, and maybe in the next couple of days, I've got to watch that and get <clears throat> more rolling here in these last two weeks before Christmas. But um, I wanted to actually talk about something else as we started out, and part of it, I've mentioned it before, uh, I but it's I see it, 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 I wanted to mention this in light of a larger issue. Um, our wonderful social media person, Harmony, has uh, kind of polled 
our audience somehow. I don't know how she does this. But the question that she's asked was, um, where is my paper here? I don't have it right in front of me. Was what 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 are the what what are the issues that are the most difficult for you to answer as a Christian? And I think the sense was there that uh, that here we are engaging our friends and family and relatives and uh, co-workers with issues with the ideas of Christianity and the good news that that we offer them, and there's going to be pushback. And sometimes we can handle the pushback, but sometimes there are elements that we just don't know know how to deal with. We're not good at that. And so that was the question she asked, and she sent out like five pages of different responses, which is great, because I, I want to see where it is that people are struggling in terms of answering. What are the challenges and what are the things that Christians in the rank and file are having a hard time dealing with or answering? So that was the big advantage there. Now, I didn't read the entire document carefully, but I did do a skim. And there were two th- general themes that I saw emerge, probably more, but these two I noticed fairly quickly. And so I want to talk about each one of those. And the first is, um, I think, exemplified in a uh, a tweet that went out to st- by Standard Reason, SDR Tweets, on our tw- Twitter platform, and was responded to, apparently, by an atheist. And I, I have a, a note here, uh, Amy told me, November 3rd, I actually did a commentary on this, so if you want to go back to that, uh, you're welcome to, but I, I, I think I'm making a little different point now than I did then. If not, I'm making the same point. It's worth hearing twice, in my humble opinion. All right. One of the categories of concern that Christians ran into was being being part of the Standard Reason community and learning from our team and our website and things that we write in our podcasts about how to respond, what good responses there are for certain challenges, and then using those responses, there was a lot of frustration expressed that those responses, those good answers, don't work (laughs) after a fashion. In other words, it wasn't good enough to satisfy the skeptic or the critic, all right? So let me make—and I'll give you an example of that, and that takes me back to the November 3rd commentary. But um, I just want to underscore something that I've said before, I talk with my team about, and needs to be repeated. We have a job to do. Our job is very particular. There are two aspects or two uh, chores—that's not the right word—enterprises that are happening— and uh, when we engage others with the truth, and that is a communication enterprise and a persuasion enterprise. And I recently, was it November, or maybe it was October, I don't know, in the fall, sent out a mentoring letter in which I talked about these two enterprises, and that one was our responsibility 100%, and the other enterprise is God's responsibility 100 percent. 
It is our responsibility to be the mouthpieces, to be the representatives, to be the ambassadors, the ones who stand in the gap between God and the people and communicate to the people what God wants them to hear. That's the gospel message and a defense for it. So we have the responsibility of speaking the truth faithfully and clearly and persuasively, and by the way, graciously. That's it. Nothing else is on our side of the ledger, in my view. All the rest is on God's side, because God is the one who's got to overcome the obstacles. And I've talked about one of those obstacles being, and obviously, the devil. He has blinded the eyes of the unbeliever. He is holding the whole world captive to do His will. All right, these are particular verses, 2 Corinthians 4, the first one, 1 John 5, the second, and there are more. We have a, a foe that we have no capability in our own strength in dealing with. Plus, the non-believer is cooperating, because according to Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, <clears throat> they are easily deceived because they don't love truth. What do they love? They love themselves. And we see that in spades in this culture more than ever before. It's always been around. This culture celebrates it. Self. You do you. Narcissism. All right. And then you've got the attraction of the world, which is all the people rebelling against God en masse, represented through cultural elements. You have the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? And that's what you're up against. And you can you cannot deal with a single one of those. Only God can. And that's on his side of the ledger. 100% God, 100% man. We are 100% responsible for our part. He's 100% responsible for his. His job is the persuading, all right? Now, I, I, I want to read this tweet to you because I've read it before in November, but I, I, it, it, it exemplifies of one aspect of our frustration. That is, people unwilling to listen. And maybe unwilling to listen isn't—that's not—I actually mean something else. I mean unwilling to be persuaded, or to at least give credit, due credit, where credit's due. <laughs> and it's not unusual for atheists to say, and I talk about this in Street Smarts, there is no evidence for God. By the way, notice that there's a difference between saying— there is no evidence, and the evidence that is offered is not compelling to them. That's something different. Okay, I get that. But to say there is no evidence, it's quite surprising. And so somewhere I made a comment that was captured by Harmony and put on uh, STR tweets, and here was my comment. We are making a claim that fits our universal experience. Moral laws need a lawgiver. Things coming into existence need an adequate cause. Design requires a designer. It's the atheist, then, that is making the claim that seems to fly in the face of the facts. Okay, there it is. Nicely done. Nice, compact, to the point. Rational, reasonable, evidential. Persuasive depends on the person. Um, but certainly there's something there, it seems to me, which is why I said it. 
But here was a response to the Post. And I want you to listen carefully and think about this response. Here it is, three sentences. Only atheism is rationally justifiable. There's no evidence at all for any gods and never has been. Reason tells us all. Rather, reason tells us they're all invented. End of quote. Now, maybe this has occurred to you already, but here's what strikes me as odd about these two statements. They're inverted. They're inverted from their natural order, it seems, or logical order. This is the way it happened. I make my post, and then they respond. But the content is inverted in their logical order, because what ought to be first is this statement. Only atheism is rationally justifiable. There's no evidence um, at all for any gods, and never has been. Reason tells us they're all invented. There's the challenge, and here's the response. Hey, we're making a claim that fits our universal experience. Moral laws need a lawgiver. Things coming into existence need an adequate cause. Design requires a designer. It's the atheist, then, that's making the claim that seems to fly in the face of the facts. So, in other words, someone could claim there's no evidence for Christianity, but the smart move is atheism, and then the response is, well, wait a minute, here's the evidence for Christianity, contrary to the, the the atheist claim. The irony here is I gave the evidence first. And, and the rationale, because it wasn't just the moral argument, the cosmological argu- argument, and teleological argument that are captured here in some, in my comments, the three major arguments for the existence of God, but there's the claim or the, really, the, the observation that our claim fits universal experience. So there's, there's, a, there's a, a evidential value to these observations. They point in a direction. They point to a conclusion. Then, having laid that all out, the response is, only atheism is rationally justifiable. There's no evidence at all for any gods, and never has been. Reason tells us they're all invented. What about what I just said? I just gave three kinds of evidence that fit our universal experience why one would properly draw the conclusion that there is a God. Now, this is what happens a lot, and that's the only reason I'm bringing it up, because this is the kind of response I think lots of people get, or they're frustrated with, in this list that was passed on to be by Harmony, they're frustrated because, wait, I give these arguments, and the response I get is essentially, nah, no, not so, dumb. By the way, that is the substance. In, in, in responses like this one, and that many of you are encountering, that is all you're given. I am not saying that atheists can't advance more sophisticated responses to the arguments. What I am saying is oftentimes they don't at all. They just say, nah, not so. No, it isn't. Go away. You're stupid. That's irrational. All right, tell me why what we've just offered is stupid. Tell me what's irrational about it. And by the way, if atheism is the only rational— is. It, uh, if only atheism is rationally justifiable, then tell me 
what the rational justifications for atheism are. Hmm. Crickets, right? But that's what's due them. So here's here's really my exhortation at this point. My exhortation is that don't expect a fair response to good arguments or evidence that you offer. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your view or your evidence. If there was something wrong with your view or your evidence, I would think the objectors would be forthcoming with that. Here's why the moral argument doesn't work. And by the way, I went—that's my favorite argument. And I went into great detail in the story of—no, I did in the story of reality, but I meant to refer to Street Smarts. I went into great detail in Street Smarts um, about why the moral argument is so powerful, and what I leveraged it with is the problem of evil. Everyone knows, no matter where you lived or when you lived, there's something wrong with the world. But that can only be the case if morality is objective. And if there is a problem of evil, then morality is objective. And if morality is objective, that means there are transcendent laws which require a transcendent lawmaker. That's it. Pretty straightforward. It turns out to be a very powerful argument. And the the end-arounds that people have attempted, I address those in the book. But you see, that's what's required. It has a straightforward common sensibility to it, as do the cosmological argument, like uh, a uh, things coming into existence need an adequate cause, or the design argument, the teleological argument, design requires a designer. Now, you can go ahead and explain away. It looks like it's designed, but it's not really. Well, that's Richard Dawkins. Okay, fair enough. Note that he says it looks designed. That's the way he starts his book, The Blind Watchmaker. The biological realm is a complex realm that gives the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. But the appearance is deceiving. He goes on to argue that rather Darwinian mechanisms can explain the appearance of design. Now the question actually is, are those mechanisms adequate to accomplish that task? I don't think they are, even on the merits unrelated to my biblical convictions. It, it, it's just obvious. That's another discussion, but I'm just simply saying, we are offering a common-sense argument that fits our common intuitions. Now, if somebody wants to take exception with it, go ahead, and we'll see if that works, if that's adequate to overcome the common-sense obvious, uh, I think, power of these three arguments that that I've offered in some here in this tweet. <clears throat> but it's not a response to just wave it off. Nuh-uh. Okay? Uh, so it, just plan on that happening. Because when they wave it off here, I'm just telling you, the problem is not with you or your evidence or your reasons or your argument. The problem is something else that's going on with that individual. And they may not even at that moment be aware of it. This is especially true, I think, for those who make dismissive responses like the one I read here. There are others that have more sophisticated responses. Okay, fine, let's deal with them. But people who are just out of the gate dismissive and say none of that counts for anything, something else is going on. And Paul describes it in Romans chapter 1. 
He says, the evidence is obvious. This is verse 18 and following. The evidence is obvious. It's right out there for them to see. But instead of responding to the evidence for the God that is over them, they suppress the evidence. Think of somebody trying to hold a beach ball underwater. They're pushing it down. It takes effort to deny it. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, they have motives for not seeing what's obviously there. And then I I think they have the audacity then to—and this is my assessment—the audacity to say, why is God so hidden? If he's there, why isn't he so obvious? Listen, you may never see your mailman, but isn't it obvious that there is a mailman because mail shows up at your <laughs> in your mailbox on a regular basis? You can you can you you can infer the cause from the effect. Why is the mailman so hidden? He's not hiding. There are mailboxes all around. You drop notes in the mailbox. You don't see anybody picking those notes up necessarily. Maybe if you don't, they still get to where they need to go. The whole process is still working, even if you don't see the mailman, because mailmen, because the process is, mailmen are required for the process to work the way it works. Now, this isn't an analogy about cause and effect. So don't come back and say, well, the mailman is a human being, we have empirical evidence, blah, blah, blah. Well, this we have empirical evidence, too. Here, that is evidence you can, you can apprehend with your five senses. The moral argument isn't like that. But certainly the design argument is, and the cosmological argument is, we're looking at physical things and we're asking, why are they the way they are? And then we're arguing from effect to appropriate cause. That's not nothing. That's not no evidence. And if it looks like no evidence, and all you're saying is, well, that's dumb, to which I have the question, why is that dumb? What is irrational about that? How is it unreasonable? I'm interested in an answer. All right? But if that's the only answer that's given, then, um, okay, well, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? What, what what more can I say? This person has decided to suppress the truth. Why? Jesus said it in John 3. The light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So I'm giving you insight from Scripture on what's going on, in a sense, in, in the unseen realm of this person's mind. We see the reaction. We're not putting them down. We're not uh, dissing them in any way, but I'm just letting you know there are going to be frustrating moments where you don't understand why this seems to make no sense to the person you're talking with, and you just get this blanket dismissal. And oftentimes it's a condescending dismissal. Like, Christian, you're an idiot. Notice how there's no evidence at all for any gods, and there never has been. How do you know that? Reason tells us they're all invented. Okay, what about reason tells us that? These are the questions. These are the clarification questions. These are the Columbo 1 questions. What do you mean by that that need to be asked when people give these responses? But if you get nowhere, don't be discouraged. 
your effectiveness is not measured by the effect. Your effectiveness is measured by your obedience. Let me say that again. It's really important. Your effectiveness is not measured by the effect. God is responsible for the effect. Your effectiveness before God, your audience of one, is measured by your obedience. You communicate the truth faithfully, clearly, persuasively, and graciously. You've done your job. That's a success before your audience of one. Let God worry about the results. Don't get discouraged if people don't respond. Incidentally, think of Jesus in John chapter 6, Bread of Life Discourse, major event in the ministry of Jesus, who had received large public acclaim up until that point. And then he spoke with such directness about a very materialistic group responding materialistically to him, looking for a free meal. Again, Jesus addresses that. And then the bulk of them turn and they leave. And he does not beg them to come back. In fact, he thought, are the disciples, are they going to leave? He says that. Now, Peter says, where, where are we going to go? You have the words that give eternal life. We know that. Even if we don't necessarily, this is paraphrase now, subtext, don't like or understand everything you say, we know you're the one. He says later, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There you go. So Jesus uh, said, there's the door. There's the door. No problem. I'm standing firm on who I am and what I'm teaching. And if you don't like it, okay, I get it. There's the door. And Jesus had confidence. And this is something that is good for us to be developing. Confidence in our view, open to challenges, trying to assess based on the pushback, the evidence, coming with, up with answers, seeing how this all works, etc. But when we give good things and there's just a, a, a blanket dismissal of what we say, okay, there's the door. There it is. Time for a break. We got callers on board. We'll get to you in just a moment. Greg Kokel here for Stand a Reason. Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? You may be interested in starting an STR Outpost. STR Outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country, and we're adding more each month. If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost, or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org outposts. You can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts at str.org. Hey friends, would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely, relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. 
If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other Stand to Reason followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. All right, two things I want to remind you of before we get to our callers, and that is this is December. So this is the last month of the year. Financially, it's the most important month for us at Stand to Reason. Uh, my appeal is consistent in the past. If we've helped you, then you can help us. Just that simple. You can read about it in uh, Galatians chapter 6, I think. Let him who is taught share all good things with him who teaches. Something that to that um, effect. And the point is, you give where you're fed. Um, that's the the New Testament um, teaching. It's not tithing. That's law, and that's Jews. It's not Gentiles. It's not New Covenant. But giving certainly is. And you give where you've been fed. We've had a rule from the very beginning of Standard Reason. It's my rule, and everyone knows it now here. And the rule is we always give before we ask to receive. We give first, before we ask to receive. And if you're thinking uh, that you have been receiving for us for some time, it's certainly appropriate for you to respond, especially this month, with a generous gift to Stand to Reason. There's lots of ways to do that. Uh, you can just go to donate.str.org, um, or you can str.org slash donate. I mean, we've made it pretty easy for you, I think, on our website. Another one of my rules, I always make it easy for people to give you money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So uh, just go to str.org, and you can do that. Of course, you're receiving and have received our uh, material through the mail, and you can respond that way if you want to do that. Uh, Keep in mind that up until the 27th of this month, if you send us a gift of any size, we will send you a signed copy of Street Smarts, my new book, subtitled Using Questions to Answer Christianity's Toughest uh, challenges. Uh, so you can tell, because it's using questions to answer, it's part of the Tactics franchise. It's the next step. It's a sequel. Some of you have already gotten it. If you uh, if you send your gift, as you normally do, you'll get another copy. You can give it away to people if you want. Um, but uh, we would love to have you participate with us and uh, make this a banner month. In fact, we have a group of dedicated donors friends of ours, partners of ours that have uh, together challenged, I should say, have provided a challenge gift. In other words, they have pledged $300,000 this month uh, with the point of challenging you, the rest of our our community out there, to either match or exceed that $300,000. So if if they're stepping up, we're encouraging you to step up as well. Just a couple more weeks, maybe Well, I guess we had about three weeks, or maybe two and a half to the 27th deadline, uh, because that's the deadline for getting the book. Street Smarts, um, using questions to answer Christianity's toughest challenges. And uh, that's my way, our way, of saying thank you for your gift this month in December. One last thing before I move on to callers, and that is we're already taking registrations for the Dallas 
reality. It's a magnificent reality this year. We've had three already, and we start our spring term in Dallas. Then we go to Philly in April. This February for Dallas. Uh, let me check the date on that. Um, 23 and 24. Thanks, Amy. Uh, the 23rd and the 24th of February. That's 10 weeks out. And so far, we have 566 people that have signed up. Now, that's, I'm looking at here, that's 20% of capacity. Ten weeks out, we're at 20% of capacity, because twenty about 2,500 is what we can hold in the auditorium. Incidentally, this is also being live-streamed. This event is being live-streamed. So if you go to realityapologetics.org, you can also find live-stream live information there for Dallas and participate there. You don't have to make the road trip. You don't have to fly out. Uh, you can get your group together, your youth group or your Bible study group or church group or whatever you want. There are different ways you could do this and uh, and watch the event from your home or from your church facility. So that's... Uh, Apologetics, uh, let's see, realityapologetics.com. And if you want to register in advance to be there, that's great. 566 so far. Always thrilled at people's fast response and uh, early registration. Okay, let's uh, let's go to our callers here. And first on board is uh, Jacob in Orlando, Florida. Hi, Jacob. Hey, Greg. How are you? Good. Good. Thanks. Hey, thanks for your encouraging words. Um, I really appreciate that. Um, About the commentary, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before, like when you started the show, I was I really uh, took a lot away from that. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I can get caught up in feeling like I have so much to do. And, of course, the responsibility that we've been given is big, but God's so much bigger than we are, and He does a lot more of the heavy lifting. So, yeah, um, that's right. But my question to you is, um, so my my buddy at work, he's he's been involved in the, the stock market mm -hmm. for a pretty decent amount of time. He's, he's taken some big losses, got some big gains and everything. And so, like, all of last year, he was telling me, Jake, you got to get into it. You got to get into it. And I'm just kind of like, no. Cause, I mean, I had a lot going on last year, so I was kind of blowing him off. Well, um Recently, I downloaded the, the app called Robinhood, where you can have access to stocks and um, day trading and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, but my question to you, Greg, is should Christians be involved in the stock market? And if so, to what extent, um, you know, do you think is appropriate, say, with, say, long-term or short-term or even day trading? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Okay, well, um, I'll give you my response. In principle, I think it's just fine. In principle, it's fine. In fact, in uh, the book of Proverbs, chapter 31, the uh, the Proverbs 31 woman is involved in investing and making a profit on her investment. Now, in this particular case, they don't have a stock market, obviously, but they do have the ability to buy land and to use that land to uh, that's a capital investment, then use the land to benefit from them. They can also sell the land. Uh, so, um, in fact, I'm, I'm looking for the verse right here. I should have found it first before I started taking calls. But uh, 
uh, where she takes she, she makes things with her hands. I think she sells them, um, and then she here it is, verse sixteen. She considers a field and buys it. It's interesting the language here, uh, Jacob. She doesn't just buy land; she considers a field. That means she's she is doing her due diligence with regards to this particular investment. From her earnings, she plants—oh, she's—let's see. She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. So she makes profit from the land, and what does she do? She reinvests it in another capital expenditure, in this case, vineyards, okay? So that's verse 16, and uh, doesn't seem to be anything wrong with that. This woman is praised as a wide— wise woman. Now, there's an investment being made that generates a profit, and in her case, she took some of the profits and increased her investment in other ways to create more, um, not, not only capital value, and capital value is when you buy something worthwhile. That's an investment. You buy a truck as your capital thing. That's your capital investment, and then you drive the truck around and mow people's lawns <laughs> with the machinery that you keep in your truck to gain your profit, okay, for example. So there's that capital investment. Now, if you are in the stock market, that's equities, all right? You are buying a portion of a company, and you you are going to make a, hoping to make a profit in one of two ways, probably. Uh, the capital value of that piece of the company you purchase, called a share, is going to increase. It increases in value because people, other people in the market think it's valuable and want to buy it too. And when you more people want to buy it, that's, that is a upward pressure and the price goes up. And so if you bought it at a lower price, you could sell it at a higher price and make a profit. It doesn't always work that way, of course. Sometimes the pressure is the other direction. People uh, don't want to buy it for whatever reason. But in any event, what you're doing is you're purchasing uh, a piece of the company with the hope of maybe selling it at a higher price in the future or participating in the profits of that, com that company through a dividend. Now, these are two different ways to do it. Nothing wrong with that at all. Um, what's important, and I'm glad that this word was in this text, I hadn't thought of that, she considers a field and buys it. So with any investment that you make, you're going to have to be wise and consider. Now, there are other passages uh, in Proverbs that talk about being where, be, be wearing, <laughs> being beware, is that the right way to say it? Be careful. <laughs> Amy's laughing at me. Be careful that you're not buying a pig in a poke kind of thing. You're, this isn't some scheme, get rich quick, and, you know, whatever. And by the way, right. Jesus even talks about this, too. He said you could at least, with regards to the unwise steward who just buried the cash and let us sit there, he said the least you could have done is, you know, just earned interest from it instead of just leaving it sit. So that's all general stuff, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Be careful, is what I'd say. No sin, but just don't be stupid, especially okay. if you have a family and you don't want to ever put money at risk that, mm -hmm. that you need for other things. Mm -hmm. These are all standard principles 
for anybody doing stock trading wisely. I've read a lot of books on it over the years. I've just come to the conclusion it's too much trouble. I can't stay on top of it. I'm too busy. And a lot of my yeah. investing has gone in a different direction. Thank you so much. I um, I really appreciate that because my, my, my conscience has been clear about the stock market and investing and everything. But um, like you said, there's there's a lot to there's a lot to learn, and I feel like being at the beginning, I want to make sure before I start putting my time and um, some so like of course my finances that I'm I'm like I feel like in conclusion you're saying be wise about the decisions that I'm making with where the money is going. Yeah, also other investments as well too. Right. Thank you so much, Greg. I, uh, I really appreciate it. All right, Jacob. Good talking to you. Bye bye now. You too. Bye. All right, let's jump over to uh, Victor. Hi, Vic. Uh, hello, Mr. Kokel. How are you, sir? Can I call you Vic, or do you rather prefer Victor? Yep. Uh, Vic is great. Okay, Vic. From Colorado, what's on your mind? Uh, I want to start with a, a personal note. Um, okay. We had met uh, a couple times uh, a long time ago. Hmm. Uh, I believe you still go to my... Uh, childhood church in Gilroy every August. Oh, yeah. I've done that for 25 years. Uh, actually, I think I'm to the 27th year now, and I only missed one year in 27 years. They keep inviting me back, so that's great. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And um, uh, my mom, uh, she was definitely a, a student of uh, apologetics, and mm -hmm. I believe she was working for the pastor at the time and mm -hmm. was the one that invited you out uh, for the for the first time. Wow, and, uh, that was a long time ago. Wow. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we we grew up with um, you know what's that there for? There for mm -hmm. in context and uh, <laughs> and uh, well, you good know, for what you. Do you mean by that, uh, definitely right. thank you for uh, your influence there. My pleasure. Uh, my question was: uh, so our church has recently been going uh, through John, and uh, we were in John chapter eight when uh, Jesus is talking to uh, the crowd in the temple, mm -hmm. and there's that section where he, uh, uh, I think he calls the, the Pharisees and their religious leaders uh, children of, of Satan. That's right. And our, kind of our pastor's message around that is like, you know, that we need to be uh, spiritual, you know, quote-unquote name callers, you know, uh, in you know the workplace and in the culture, uh, you know, emulating Jesus in this way. And I guess I've always had struggled with that idea mm -hmm. because like one of, you know, that we are, we don't come from the same place that Jesus does, that mm -hmm. you know, Jesus was uh, sinless and we are sinful. You know, we were once children of Satan and, and now we are, you know, adopted as children of God. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I guess, yeah, on our part, you know, that we don't come from the same place. And then for the, you know, the, the subject of the name-calling, you know, is it seems like the Gospels and the New Testament's, you know, harshest words are for the religious leaders and Pharisees who claim to represent the true God. Right. And, um, you know, there's more, you know, well, the world's going to act like the world, so there's not yeah, that much of I, I think I'm, I'm a little sensitive to the time now because we're in the last seven minutes here, but um, so okay. I don't want to give you the short shrift. Um I do think we have to be mindful of the entire set of circumstances that Jesus finds himself in here in John 8. And it's good, you know, you start in the beginning of John 8 and read all the way through. There's a lot of conflict that he's he's going through in count with the, with the religious leaders. And I think that more could be made 
of Jesus' conflict with religious leaders than than is appropriate. That seemed to be the con- the conflict point, all things considered, given that environment. Okay, now a lot of people have picked up on that today, and they said, "Well, Jesus had his most difficult times." and the worst things to say of religious leaders, and therefore we should be pushing back against all of our religious leaders, all you fundamentalists who think you're right about religion. And this is part of a, the chorus of the, the ex-evangelicals, or the, uh, the, the deconstructionists, the, uh, those who have left the Church, and say, we shouldn't be listening to you guys. And I think they're mischaracterizing what's going on in Jesus' life. Yes, those were the the leadership, but what the leadership was doing was distorting the word, okay, distorting the truth. And um and and they were the cultural leaders of the time that were drifting away from scripture. And so Jesus, you could also cast these spiritual leaders as these are these are the cultural leaders of the period of time, not just the religious leaders that have maligned and misrepresented and mischaracterized the truth. Now, the group that's doing that, I don't think is the conservative Christian person. I think that is more of the leftist so-called Christian that's doing that. They're looking more like the world. Now, that's a little bit of a separate discussion, but the point I'm making is you have a very particular dynamic here. And, And Jesus doesn't just call them names. He's giving arguments against them. In fact, one part of John 8 he says, well, look, you don't want, believe me. You say, well, you're your own witness. You're just one witness. We don't have to believe you. Well, I'm not my only witness. What about John? What about Moses? What about the rest of the Scriptures? What about the miracles that I do? And these are all things that Jesus says is he's making the case, all right? And then, um, and then they're opposing him aggressively, right? And saying that he—I'm not sure if they— if if this is the case in John 8, I'd have to look more carefully, but that he has a demon, all right? Um, And and by the way, he says, I'm looking at verse 40. Um, As it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, and this Abraham did not do. And see, they're, they're identifying their allegiance with Abraham, and Jesus is saying, if Abraham were here, he'd be siding with me. The point I'm making is this is a carefully characterized case that Jesus is making throughout the chapter. And there are, it's the longest chapter. There are 59 verses that—and, uh, of course, you know, there's more there in the Gospel of John, but this whole section of confrontation, there's, there's, uh, there, there's a challenge. Jesus says, you, you, you cannot hear my words. Why not? Because you're not of the Father. You're of your Father, the devil. So, yeah, that's strong language. But Jesus isn't just kind of preaching publicly and hurling epithets carelessly at those people who don't receive him. He's making a case, and he's speaking with a group of people that are trying to kill him. And he's speaking very boldly with them. So I think there there is a I guess you could call it name-calling. Usually the, the phrase name-calling is used to characterize a, a, an inappropriate way of arguing where you dismiss somebody else's view by simply attacking the person. Jesus isn't doing that. 
He's assessing the circumstances and assessing them the way they are. You heard my commentary earlier, right? And when I talked about a lot of these atheists, they are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They 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 love darkness rather than light. Now that was a that was a, an assessment, the kind of assessment that Jesus is making in John eight, and I was actually citing him from John three, his comment. But I wasn't name calling. I mean, I wouldn't characterize it at that. And so I don't think that Jesus is actually name-calling here, but he is assessing the circumstances in a clear fashion and pointing the finger where it needs to be pointed in the case of the Pharisees who are trying to kill him. So I just want—I think we ought to be careful, and I, I didn't sit in on the sermon, and you can, you know, respond, but uh, you did. But I, I, I'd, I'd be concerned if somebody's just characterizing this as name-calling and that we got to be name-calling the culture as well. Maybe we need to be speaking the truth and pointing the finger where it needs to be point, pointed, making the case, but it's not just to humiliate people and to just, in a broad way, attack people. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I think so. So if you just—I suggest just start in John chapter 8 and read the whole chapter— and maybe that'll give you a sense of the flow of what Jesus is trying to accomplish there. And I think you're going to see it's, a, it's not a shallow kind of name-calling. I think it's a very sophisticated way of addressing the challenges that he's facing. All right? All right. All right. Thanks a lot for the call, Vic. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye now. John 8, great chapter. Lots of good stuff in there. Jesus is very aggressive, right? And sometimes we need to be very aggressive. We need to call a spade a spade. It doesn't mean we fall into some kind of uh, informal fallacy and just get nasty. He didn't like what he was saying. He knew that. But it wasn't the way he was saying it so much as the content of what he was saying. And in fact, that chapter ends with their attempt to kill him, I think. Before Abraham was, I am, was his comment. They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. All right, friends, that's it for this hour. Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. Give him heaven, all right? Bye-bye.